Hi, everyone. Welcome to the John Dingle Health Disparities Panel. We are excited to have four esteemed panelists with us today uh, to have a discussion about health disparities and cancer prevention and treatment. My name is JoLynn Gardner, and I serve as the Associate Chair of the Department of Health Studies at American University, and I'll be your moderator today. Um, I'd like the panelists to all introduce themselves before we get started with our conversation. And so um, I will uh, ping them one at a time and uh, we'll go around and have them say a couple of words about their work and then we'll get started with the conversation. So um, first uh, we have Rob Marino. Rob, could you introduce yourself? Sure, uh, thank you for having me. Uh, it's great to have this conversation with everybody. Uh, my name is Rob Marino. I'm the director of the Fauquier Free Clinic in Warrenton, Virginia. Uh, we are a free clinic serving uninsured, low-income families and those with Medicaid in Fauquier and Rappahannock counties of Virginia. Uh, we've been operating for about 25 years, and we see we're open five days a week. We see about 2,000 patients a year in our uh, little semi-rural community. We do primary medical care, dental care, and mental health care. Uh, to serve those families. Thanks, Rob. Uh, Dr. Burnett, could you introduce yourself and tell us about your work? Yes, sure. Um, thank you, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here and to be a part of the panel. My name is Camille Burnett, and I am the Associate Vice President for Education and Health Equity. And as well, I'm the Executive Associate Director for a program called Inclusion, Inquiry, and Innovation at Virginia Commonwealth University. And so within those programs, they operate within the Office of Institutional Equity, Effectiveness, and Success. And the role of that office is really far-reaching across the academic community and as well the external-facing community that we're a part of, which is a Richmond, really rich urban uh, populated area. And we really start looking at ways in which we can drive, use diversity to drive excellence in our programs, in our research, in our education, and as well in a lot of the community-led and community-driven initiatives that we have here. So it's a pleasure to be, to be here with all of you. Thank you so much. And um, let's turn to your colleague, uh, Tremaine. Would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you. Uh, happy to be here with everyone. My name is Tremaine Robertson. I work at VCU or Virginia Commonwealth University's Massey Cancer Center. Uh, we are an NCI designated cancer center, and I'm the director for diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, at Massey. Uh, it's an inaugural position. I'm excited and happy to be in the role. And my role is essentially to advance DEI uh, with regard to policy, practice, patient care, patient care, personnel, and procedure. And so I'm using DEI to help our researchers, our clinicians, our trainees, and our staff do the best uh, that they can do to reduce cancer and cancer disparities for folks in our Casper area throughout Virginia. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. And last, but definitely not least, we have Kathy Larea. Well, good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really proud of the Less Cancer Initiatives and glad to be part of the panel again. I am the Executive Director of the Oncology Service Line for Munson Healthcare. So we are a health system in um, northern Michigan, rural community. We serve about 30 counties and a portion of the Eastern Upper Peninsula. 
So I um, started here about seven years ago before we built our cancer center to create a hub and spoke model. And then we have seven hospitals that are either critical access or sole community. So we try to provide as much care as we can close to home. Great. Thank you so much, Kathy. Um, so now I'd like to get started with a few questions for our panelists. And Rob, I think I'm going to start with you. Um, as we know, every healthcare provider has had to adapt to the pandemic during the past 18 months. And I am wondering if you can share with us some lessons that we can learn about health disparities and prevention based on your experience at the free clinic. Sure. Um, those of us who work in healthcare, I, if you're like me, I, I barely remember a time before the pandemic, uh, just 18 months in. Uh, it feels like it's been going on forever. Uh, but it hasn't. It's been really a pretty rapid change in um, in the health and the way we deliver healthcare uh, in the country. Um, I really see the pandemic as kind of a magnifying glass for uh, the good and the bad that was in our healthcare system beforehand. Um, things that we've been very good at, we've been really great at. People have been out on the barricades just trying to help their communities. Uh, but things that were unfair and that were difficult for disadvantaged communities. Uh, seemed like they got worse immediately. Um, the idea of an essential worker, I, I think that was uh, early on that who, who could get in, who could get help, who could get tested, who could get vaccines. Uh, really, if you'd ask people three years ago, what is an essential worker? I don't think they would have said grocery store workers and postal care workers and people working shift work. Uh, but now we realize that our whole society is counting on those people. Uh, and the way we deliver health care you know, especially at the beginning, uh, we didn't want to have so much physical access to care. And so the doors were locked and there was a lot of screening and uh, we switched pretty rapidly to a lot of telehealth. Uh, at my clinic, we've been doing some mental health care by telehealth for a few years now. When we started that, it was this radical idea that people were getting their health care on a, on a screen and not in face-to-face. -face. And in no time, that's become sort of the model for how a lot of healthcare work. And so even when we get past this, I think some of those lessons are gonna stick with us uh, because we found out that some of the primary care things doctors can do uh, work just fine that way. And so, you know, there's certainly a place for touching and feeling and doing a physical exam, but that's not necessary every single time we interact with a doctor. Uh, the other thing that was really poignant for us is that we're a dental care facility as well. Um, and that was super scary uh, at the beginning, and it still is. Uh, there's a lot more risk of transmission. There's no mask. You're you're really you're face to face for up to an hour with a the patient. They're spraying, and there's all kinds of uh, opportunity for transmission. And in my clinic, we unfortunately had a number of our staff get sick, uh, despite everything we did to protect them. Um, when you look at who has to come to a free clinic for medical care, for mental health care, for dental care, you know, they don't represent the, the community in the same way as the, those with insurance. And, you know, those inequities became pretty apparent pretty rapidly. 
Thank you for those observations and for um, sharing those um, incidences with us. Um, I think it, you said it so well that that we've learned a lot and um, the pandemic has magnified uh, many of the disparities that you all work with. Um, and it's also taught us new ways of um, addressing some of the, the disparities and challenges we face. Um, Kathy, that makes me think of your work and um, the notion of of uh, working with rural populations, um, because as we know, they face um, a lot of disparities similar to what Rob is talking about. But um, one thing that definitely I also th am thinking about is the fact that access to care can be a real challenge, especially when people have to travel, you know, greater than 50 miles or more one way for treatment. Um, so I'm wondering if maybe you can talk about the measures that um, Munson Healthcare has put in place to mitigate some of those challenges and if any of that has changed in, in the pandemic um, as well. Well, sure. And I would agree with what Rob said. Pre-pandemic, we had some good policies and practices in place that we were wondering would they you know, transcend post-pandemic. But I know in the northern Michigan area, we have some of the highest rates of young female breast cancer and young colon cancer and pancreatic cancer and hereditary cancer. So we were already doing research to try and figure out what some of those causes were. Then during the pandemic, we shut down screening opportunities. So the people that with the most disparate issues didn't have access to screening. Now everybody's not getting screened for mammograms or colonoscopies or whatnot. So what we've done since then is really um, you know, put measures in place to protect our patients and our and our clinicians as well. We did see a substantial decrease in screening. So we've been trying to do some measures to, you know, tell the community that it is a safe environment to come into and not to delay or forego some of your screenings. The transportation has always been a barrier. We've had um, pre-pandemic, we had great resources with our Department of Transportation and having contracts to transport patients to, say, our radiation oncology department. But now with COVID, that social distancing, all of those issues came into play. And so what were we going to do? We worked with um, the American Cancer Society, and we have extra grants now just to buy gas carts so that people can travel themselves and not have to transfer on the bus line from county to county to get to our flagship um, cancer center. But with our hub and spoke model, we have um, developed infusion clinics and we have a medical oncologist that travels to some of our other hospitals so we can see patients there as well. But yeah, it, it is still a challenge to try and balance what we were trying to do before the pandemic and then to keep this momentum going. Thank you for that, that great work that you're doing. Um, Camille and Tremaine, this, this makes me uh, ponder some of the work that you're doing. And I'm wondering if the two of you could maybe talk a little bit of, excuse me, a little bit about how cancer centers and equity offices and policymakers can partner to address the screening barriers uh, that Kathy and, and even Rob um, described and hinted at upstream and help to implement policies that address the root causes of these health inequities. Sure. I will, I will start by leading off with just um, appreciation for both Kathleen and Rob recognizing 
that there is a need to sort of reimagine and re-envision what we were doing before and what we are doing now, because we are still neo-pandemic. And what it's forced us to do is look at healthcare in a much more pragmatic way as, as a spectrum, a continuum of health, and not just an episode or a disease orientation. It's really broadening things out to think more about the social determinants of health. And I think that's really at the heart of where we start to look at how can we create solutions. And so the work that our office does in combination and partnership and collaboration is that we start to look for ways that we can co-create solutions, whether it's screening, whether it's clinical cancer trials, it's really about a collective now addressing this work is because we have to look at things ecologically. We have to look beyond the individual we have to look at communities, we have to look at systems, we have to look at structures. So we have to look at not just the disease itself, but also the disease of inequity. And we need to start threading inequity through many of the decision-making and many of the things that we, we are working on together. Some of the work that um, our groups have been doing together in, in tandem with Massey has been really looking at ways that we can start to illuminate um, what are some of the barriers that, that we've recognized and not and we've known about even before the pandemic, but have been really accentuated by the pandemic? And so we have transdisciplinary teams, for example, of researchers across the institution who are working on redressing some of these really big social issues of our time. And part of that also will include some collaborations with our, our partners, including Massey and our community members who are part of that. So you leverage these differences, you leverage the diversity of thinking, you leverage the diversity of ideas, and then you also work and build a collaborative ecosystem of partners so that we can all come together to start building an equity from the beginning and not reacting to it you know, on the end part. So to follow up, uh, to Camille's point, Massey is, is really benefited from IES's brilliance with regard to their, their faculty cluster hiring model. And so we're partnering with uh, Camille's office to figure out how we can create what, what, we're, what we're envisioning and calling a cancer core of, of the best and brightest faculty that we can recruit from around the country to address these issues from a transdisciplinary issue, because we have a very diverse catchment area throughout Virginia. And so while Massey is located in Richmond, Virginia, we represent folks uh, or, or serve patients in central, eastern, and in the south, uh, eastern, uh, southern areas of Virginia. And that includes 4 million racially, ethnically, geographically, and socioeconomically diverse individuals. And of those, of this, of that populace, that includes 41% of the residents that identify as racial or ethnic minorities uh, within the state, as well as 52% of those folks are living in rural communities. And so it's important for us to work with uh, offices at Virginia Commonwealth University, like Camille's office, to address these issues upstream and create a pipeline of our the next uh, generation of biomedical researchers, um, social workers, uh, all types of folks that we can recruit to VCU uh, to do the best work possible for, for our patients. Additionally, one of the ways that we're working directly with policymakers is we have a wonderful um, um, event that happens every Friday that was created by Black clergy in Virginia, and it's called Facts 
and Faith Friday. And that started as a result of um, Black clergy recognizing that Black people throughout the state were, were dying disproportionately and being impacted disproportionately by COVID-19. So they came to our director, D- Director uh, Rob Wynn, to discuss how can they get more information about COVID-19 and how can the Massey Cancer Center help uh, deliver information to, to Black folks throughout the state of Virginia. So every Friday, we have a Zoom call. We give um, anyone who wants to sign on and, and, and join uh, information about COVID-19, about cancer disparities. Uh, we've had Democratic and Republican candidates uh, recently join us. We've had uh, Dr. Francis Collins. We've had Anthony Fauci. Uh, we've had folks from the CDC. And so we've been lucky and fortunate to really have a platform to give uh, the Black community throughout the state of Virginia the information that they want. But this was a community-driven initiative that we were able to uh, listen, learn, and and work with community folks to, to take the lead on. You know, I don't want us to sort of, you know, take over with too many examples, but I think what, what the, I love the examples of, of what Massey is doing and our collaborations and partnerships, because all of these areas that address equity, they really transcend disciplines, they transcend institutions. I mean, our office, one of the programs I identified was our IQ, our transdisciplinary scholars program that we're, you know, engaging with Massey. We also have an IXL program where there's education related specifically to areas of equity and diversity and inclusivity that, you know, are helpful for not just, you know, our colleagues at Massey, but again, externally and internally facing. So there's many ways in which all of this threading of equity um, is happening and potentially could happen. Yeah, it, it's so vitally important that we take a whole systems, as you said, ecological approach to these issues because they are so massive. So we need really creative, you know, community-centered uh, interventions and innovations, and we we need, um, you know, lots of really progressive and um, transformative thinking all the way up to the policy level as well. So you guys have given great examples of, of um, all of those approaches. Um, in terms of a policy approach, uh, Rob, I bet you have some insight on uh, something that Virginia did in 2019. Um, in 2019, Virginia expanded Medicaid to low-income adults, and uh, they did this in an effort, obviously, to address some of these health disparities. And I'm wondering if you've seen changes in your community and in the population you serve, and I'm wondering if you also can comment on uh, population segments that have maybe been still left out um, because this hasn't addressed the inequities for everyone. Uh, well, you certainly asked the right question. I mean, that that expansion of Medicaid in, to um, low-income adults in Virginia for, in my world was an earthquake. I mean, it was really dramatic because although it wasn't a huge number of people in Virginia compared to the whole population, it was about half of the people that we currently serve who were eligible. And, you know, the biggest driver of inequity in the healthcare system, as far as I'm concerned, is lack of access to the system. So people who can't pay, who don't have insurance, or uh, for me, the other question, if you ask someone, who is your doctor? And they can't say a name. I think that's predictive of all kinds of trouble. Uh, if they say a place or they say I go to the urgent care and they don't say Dr. Jackson or a person, that 
tells you that they're not accessing the healthcare system until there's an emergency. So in the course of a year, half of the people that the free clinic serves in my community went from completely uninsured to having Medicaid, which covers medicine, it covers seeing your doctor, it covers going to a specialist, it covers hospital care. It completely changes your relationship to the healthcare system. And you know, there's just no doubt that that was disproportionately helpful to people of color and people who have left been left behind. Now, there's still half of the people that we serve who are not getting Medicaid or are not eligible for Medicaid. And for all kinds of reasons, they're either in churn or they're in between or things have changed in their family economic situation. They're going up and down um, their citizenship issues, all kinds of reasons why it hasn't reached everybody. Um, but we've made a lot of progress. And I think we need to celebrate that when it happens. That, that really has led to a lot of changes. The the next step, I think, from a policy point of view is that lots of physicians and systems don't accept Medicaid or participate in the system. And so kind of surprising to me, what happened for some of our patients is actually things got harder for them because what they needed was specialty care. And we had sort of an arrangement for specialists to see that patient on a charitable basis. And now they couldn't get that anymore because they actually had a carrier. So they have to leave our community to travel to somewhere where there is a specialist who participates in the Medicaid system. So my hope is next that that system will start to reach into more offices and more specialists and more services. Some of these unintended consequences, right? Um, you I know, it, add, if I could add on to, to Rob's comments too. Absolutely. Please. I was actually going to pose a question to you next. So okay. you uh, make your comment and then I'll do that. Well, I think, um, you know, going on the, the exchange and, and being able to access health insurance has been extremely helpful. But to your point, Rob, that half of the people don't even know how to do it or what's available to them. When they come to us with a cancer diagnosis, many of them are now, you know, incurring debt because they didn't realize that they were able, able to access some insurance. And then what we're finding, which I think is just a struggle for our our just our nation is that like this time of year from October to, to December, if you're diagnosed with cancer, you're trying to meet all of your co-insurance, co-pays and deductibles, and then your treatment is not done. So then you go into the new year and you've got to repay all those co-insurances, co-pays and deductibles. And it's like almost the worst time to be diagnosed with cancer because you haven't met that. So we've employed um, financial navigators which I think most cancer centers do to really look for foundation support, community foundation support, pharmaceutical company support to really help bridge the gap. It's almost like, you know, the donut hole for Medicare patients is, is problematic, but so is this just cycle of when you receive a diagnosis to when you can receive care. So I think there's still, while we've made some improvements with this, there's still many gaps with people uninsured or underinsured when they come come with a catastrophic diagnosis. That's such an important issue to point out, uh, Kathy, um, the notion of carrying this medical debt and um, you know lacking access because of um, finances or lack thereof um, is really uh, problematic. And I think it's an issue that a lot of folks who enjoy having healthcare insurance um, maybe don't, don't contemplate and don't think about. Um, Camille and Tremaine, 
Any thoughts on what we can do from a more systemic, uh, broad policy level, either at the, the state or federal level to address some of those issues that were raised by both Rob and Kathy? So my initial thoughts as I was listening to this was is getting back to thinking about things um, intersectionally and thinking about all the ways in which all of these different gaps play into all of these issues of access. And it is access to healthcare, but it's access to food, it's access to housing, it's access to all of these things that are layered and also create bigger health disparities. And so from a policy perspective, I feel that it's important that when we are building and creating and informing these policies, that we do think about equity in all of the policies and health defined as the broader determinants of health in all of our policies. And what does that look like? Are we building them and creating them and constructing them in a way where that piece is built into that? Or again, as I mentioned earlier, are we reacting to that on the back end? Um, and it's and it's across populations, even people who are, you know, insured or as mentioned, underinsured or not insured at all. There's issues of transportation, there's childcare, there's all these other spaces, um, employment that impact people's ability to live healthy and well. And what are all of those things collectively? And the pandemic just showed us the matrices by which all of these things are interwoven and how they all interact. And so we have to. First of all, I think data is a really great source to help us visualize what is happening and not data in silos about one population issue versus another, but starting to pull all of that together in a way that's very precise so that we can identify where are the gaps, but where are the opportunities for us to start making a difference. And so there, there, I have some really you know, big visions around how we can use and democratize data in a way that is responsive to the needs of the community. And I think that's one way. And then also using our research through some of the spaces that we've talked about to find ways to redress and to build solutions into policies. Because if we disseminate that knowledge and we're at a conference or we're speaking on panels like this, this is great. But what are the actionable pieces that we can take to inform policy direction in a meaningful and substantive way? And that has to be articulated and then it has to be uptaken and then infused into that system. So I will take a pause to, a, I see there's, there's lots of people who want to say something. So I will pause for a minute. I think Camille, I would just want to make sure that we involve like the payers and the insurance companies because the, the population health model can really get us into a good place if everybody played in that same court. An example we were trying to do was um, with one of our large insurance companies in the state of Michigan was a fruit and vegetable program. And now with, um, you know, grocery store shipping, could we have food delivered to some homes that are, that are having difficulty seeking that? So, but then it might work in a pilot, but then we can't figure out how to make it sustainable. So that's where every, all, everyone needs to sit at the table and really figure out with these good ideas, you know, how we can get that, that proper food or the screening to folks. I agree with you. And, and, you know, with that in mind, the community is the expert. We have to value their expertise, right? And we have to tell their stories. 
So part of using the information is not just about numbers, but it's also about stories. And, and the way that we lean into the community and we engage them in a meaningful way as part of the solution and leveraging their expertise to build these policies out, you're exactly right. It will start to address some of those areas. Okay, so how do we scale this up? How does this look different in your community versus the community in, that we're in? What are ways in which we can <clears throat> work together? What systems are in place? What are our gaps? So I, I completely agree with you. We have to involve the payers. We have to involve the end users. We have to involve the communities and especially the communities that are most affected. And so one of the ways that, that we are responding to that and trying to, to impact the, the ecosystem and to, to develop trust within the community is we're working directly with folks in intentional ways. And so, for example, at Massey, to give you just a few examples, you know, obviously earlier I mentioned uh, Facts Faith Friday, which is, you know, a space where we deliver information uh, every Friday on behalf of the Black community at their direction, and particularly Black clergy. Uh, but we also are working with folks in our rural areas throughout Virginia. So, for example, um, our, again, our director, uh, Robert Wynn, uh, visited Brunswick County, Virginia, some months ago and, and, and did, a, did a talk, held a talk at a, at a church about COVID-19 and was asked by the folks in that community to provide more information about cancer prevention and cancer care. And, and Brunswick County is a very rural community, hours away from Richmond, Virginia, and has some of the highest rates of cancer in our state. And so as a result, in January 2022, we're going to start producing a bi-monthly newsletter for that community that gives them information about cancer care, cancer prevention, and overall health. So that's one way that we are trying to build trust and give the community information that it's requested to help them be empowered and, and drive their policymakers, their lawmakers, uh, to work harder for them. Uh, additionally, we've created what we call the Massey Community Coalition. And so we've We've invited uh, folks from different communities around the state uh, that represent different racial and ethnic communities, different religious communities, uh, folks from, from um, the LGBT community, folks from different Native nations. So we can take information from those communities, learn how cancer is impacting them, and make practical um, and, and impactful um, decisions and, and, and meaningful uh, moments for those folks. And so one specific way that that's happening is we've developed what's called the Community Seed Grant. And that seed grant is going to be a, a place where folks from all around the state can apply for money. Uh, and it's going to be initially a $5,000 grant. It's going to grow in the future. But this is going to help improve uh, cancer outcomes in, you know, directly or indirectly in disparate communities and if folks want to apply for it, we, you know, we're, we're excited. We're going to give them technical assistance to learn about how to apply for the grant and, and what it means. And so, we're, you know, we're doing our part, again, taking direction from the community with regard to what's helpful, what's important, and then using that information with the data that we have to make intentional decisions. But we don't want to in, impact them or, or act upon them as a stereotypical anthropologist would and go into a community, get all the information take everything from them and leave and never see them again. You know, we're being partners and building trust with folks. 
That's so absolutely critical in uh, having successful and sustainable interventions, right, is letting the, the community that the intervention is meant to serve, letting them um, help develop it and drive it and, um, you know, really formulate um, the, the initiatives. You know, as I'm listening to all of you, I'm getting a sense um, of just the magnitude of the issues, right? And and I'm wondering if maybe each of you could speak um, about how you decide to prioritize um, prevention activities versus screening activities versus treatment activities um, in terms of the initiatives that that you know you and your teams are are formulating um, because the needs in all of those areas are so great as are the disparities and so how do we how do we approach this uh, to maintain as Kathy alluded to earlier a, a sustainable you know system that provides us with solutions I don't know if anybody wants to take that on first I can use an example um, when I got to Northern Michigan, all the, the little hospitals all had infusion clinics because, of course, that helps the, the hospital survive. And the cancer center wasn't built yet. So I, I didn't have the hub and spoke model in place. I had the spokes and not the hub. And so when we were looking at the health disparities in Northern Michigan, smoking was still just so prevalent here. And so it was like, if we could just mitigate some of that, what could we do? So from you know, a healthcare administrator, we took a look at all of our hospitals' CAT scan machines to make sure that they could provide the low-dose CT scan for the high-risk people. But And we certified all of those machines, and we've been very successful with getting screenings. But for me, it was like, well, I just don't want to be the place that delivers treatment. We have to get to the front end and do the, the prevention and the screening. So we did develop a coalition in Northern Michigan um, and it was with our health departments, it was with the schools, it was with um, some of the universities to just look at how can we deliver, what are the successful smoking cessation programs? How do you get people to change? If we screen somebody, we diagnose them with a curable lung cancer, but the whole family is still smoking, what have we done? So um, that's what we're embarking on right now. Um, in Northern Michigan, we only had like two people that even were certified to facilitate a smoking cessation class. We had some employers that wanted to um, have this in their, in, their, um, in their workplace. We created videos, then we started doing things virtual. So right now we're still a little bit struggling on just trying to like minimize that disparity to try and help prevent the future cancer. So, um, you know, it, it takes, you know, as Camille said, you really have to partner with everybody where they're at. So the, the last thing we just started working on was, was with our tribal community as well. And there is now a, um, a internal medicine provider in that community. And so we weren't getting responses from the leadership of the tri tribal community, but we did find inroads with that provider who just embraced and said, you know what, I have a lot of people that we can refer. If you will bring that on site to us, then maybe we can figure out a way to talk about this. So, you know, we're just, again, trying lots of different opportunities to try and make things better. I want to jump in too. Um, you know, we're at the sharp end. Um, 
patients are coming in the front door um, one at a time and seeing our clinicians one at a time. Uh, and we're sort of a clinician of last resort for uh, people that have been left out of the, out of the private market. Um, and so you see people in crisis. You see people when they've lost a job. You see people when they've suddenly become very sick and their family said, you got to go see a doctor. Uh, and it's very easy to just get trapped on the treadmill of just, I got to take care of this one. And I got to take care of this one. And I got to take care of this one. And we're full. So it's very hard. You have to be very, you just have to make it important that you're going to think upstream and about why that patient got in the door in the first place. But you, you can't do it unless you make it important um, because we would certainly never run out of patients from having a crisis that day. And so if you don't realize that this is the only place that person is coming to get healthcare, and if I don't talk to them about their diet or their cholesterol or their smoking or their drinking or their sleep or all of the other problems that they're having, no one ever will. And so you talk about cancer prevention, you know, the hallmark of that is to be healthy in the first place and to have a healthy lifestyle and to do screening to catch things early. Um, you know, if somebody comes in with an earache, you know, maybe that's not the day to do the screening, but you have to then engage and bring that person in and make them a patient. And so that's what we try to do. And we try to build our schedule and say, look, you can't fill this spot. This is going to be for a return patient. This is for somebody's comeback visit. And so we'll take care of their problem today, but we have to make them come back and be part of our system. Uh, and it's really hard because patients will call, the phone rings off the hook, and people are saying, you know, I can't sleep with this toothache. You know, of course, you got to do something for that patient, but you can't only do that. And that, that's the fight that we've had for 20 years. You know, it's, it's constantly, we have to not get sucked into only doing episodic care because it's a, it's a trap. You know, as everybody was talking, I'm like, yeah, uh, yep, yep, absolutely. Completely, on, you know, diddle to everything that, that has been set up to this point. And I, I really feel for the position of our office, you know, to really leverage the collective impact by working in partnership and aligning of efforts. So health equity is something that is happening in many different spaces. All of us are doing this work, whether it's internally within our institution it's at the, um, the medical side of things, the academic side, various community partners, agencies, et cetera. Everyone is, is, is swimming in this pool of looking at ways to address equity. So why not align our efforts so that we can have a bigger collective impact on our results? And so I think for us, it's really the alignment piece. It's the partnership piece. It's, again, listening to the community and allowing them to prioritize, you know, you're right, this is huge. There's so many areas of inequity and injustice. So where do you even begin, right? And so allowing us to take the, the leadership from the community for them to identify what are those priorities and then for all of us to leverage the, the capacities that we have as a collective to start to address those. And I also think more so to Rob's point is that we also have to look at not just, again, I mentioned earlier, this ecosystem, ecological approach that, yeah, we have to address the individual, but we also have to start really seriously looking at the structural inequities and what we need to do to start to fix those, to redress those, to reimagine them, whatever that might be. And that's within healthcare and external to healthcare and how we even define health in the first place. 
you know, thinking about it beyond this disease model and really staying within that upstream and preventative space. And then what does that look like? And in infusing all of that with the considerations around the determinants of health and also moving the needles in all of those spaces. So ultimately, you're right, so that people can have a basic foundation of health and flourishing and wellness. And what does that look like? And so collectively, I think if we work towards that and, and I see our office as just a one piece of that bigger wheel that's working, but we can no longer say, you know, this is this person's wheelhouse or this belongs to this discipline and continue to work in silos. We have to really much more cohesively come together in a much more matrixed idea and then start to foster some of that innovation of, okay, we've not done this before, but let's be bold. Let's be courageous. Let's step out there and do that because we were forced to do that in the pandemic to push things and boundaries that we had never anticipated doing. So let's continue to do that. You know, essentially my role and where I start is, you know, again, looking at the intersections, the cultural factors, um, social determinants of health and, and making sure that our scientists, our clinicians, our folks in the clinic are pairing that information with the science to do the best uh, that we can do for, for our patients. That's really critical. And then when I think about, uh, again, developing a pipeline and cultivating the next generation of talent throughout those different uh, fields, it's making sure that we're, we're, you know, we're recruiting folks from rural parts of Virginia. We're recruiting folks who have an appreciation for the different lifestyles and the different disparities that people are experiencing that come into our doors that that are, are that have cancer, right? And so we, you know, we don't want a workforce uh, that looks, thinks, and and impacts and, and engages all of our patients in the same way. We want folks who can think outside of the box, who've had different experiences, and who are going to do the best that they can for folks throughout Virginia. We, we we think of ourselves as a cancer center for all Virginians, and so that's really important for us. I love that. The big picture that the four of you collectively have illustrated for all of us, everything from, you know, initiatives that are happening at, um, as Rob and Kathy talked about, you know, point of care, all the way up to um, educating, uh, you know, future providers and, um, you know, then crafting those, those larger interventions, you know, from the, the community and, and policy expertise. Um, I am looking at the time and we have uh, about 10 minutes left and something struck me as I was listening to all of you, you speak. And um, that was the notion that this is the fourth year that I have moderated this disparities panel. And I have to say, I, you know, over the years, we've had different panelists and um, we've talked about different issues, but, but some things, you know, have been recurring themes. And um, I am just wondering if each of you, though, could maybe leave us on a real positive note and reflect a little bit about what do you see as most promising? You know, what, what, what gives you hope? Um, what are we doing right or what is going well or where do you see promise um, in, in your future work? And, um, you know, how can we sustain that? 
So any thoughts on that? I know that that's a little bit of a surprise question, <laughs> but um, it just struck me that you're all doing such amazing work. There, there must be some really wonderful things that, that you can uh, share with the rest of us to give us hope that we are making inroads in addressing these disparities. I'd like to jump in, uh, Jill. Great. Um, I've been very inspired by uh, the other panelists. Um, uh, and the work that you folks are doing, and I think you're you're onto something. Um, I think we are having these conversations more easily. It's become uh, accepted in healthcare that these are things that we have to think about, and I do see change happening. Uh, you know, we we aren't happy. It's too slow. It's taking too long. It's it's not fair. But you do have to celebrate when things are getting better. And I think that they will and they must. And we won't be satisfied until they do. Um, you know, we've started doing more social determinant screening in my in my clinic, uh, ask, doing depression scales or social determinants uh, screening. And when someone comes in because they hurt their elbow, they still get the screening. And then my physicians have come to me and said, I did not think this was going to be worth the trouble. But I learned a lot about this patient who I've known for a long time because no one's asked them these questions before. And so that's acceptance and that's open to, to learning. And I, I see that throughout the system. And, you know, we said earlier that the changes that have happened because of the pandemic, some of them have been good changes. And I think they will persist. And it sort of galvanized a lot of people to, to make changes in their community. Uh, Camille said the community is the expert. I wrote it down because that touched me. And I think we have to remember that all the time. So I do think there's hope and, and we're going in a good direction going. I think healthcare as a whole hasn't been very nimble all along. And so I think there's absolutely been, been positives that have come out of this. I've been keeping a list on my whiteboard. Um, I use a Winston Churchill quote that change is good as long as it's in the right direction. And so even in our sphere of oncology care, um, we've learned to create a fast track for injections. So people have less touch points when they come into the health system. Um, we've learned to um, just the telehealth options to us. I, I totally agree. You still need to do some physical exams, but the genetics counseling, the social work conducting um, support groups virtual has expanded our reach of people. And nutritional counseling, you know, even really understanding that our elder population are pretty adept at their, you know, little Facebook with their grandkids and being able to FaceTime. And so we're we're trying to be nimble and be more creative with all of that. And instead of waiting for you have to find transportation to get to the cancer center. So I am very hopeful and I have a whole list of of things that um, I, I have plus from the pandemic. You know, echoing really what Rob said and being inspired by all of you and, and um, thinking through like, you know, what what am I excited about and, and hopeful for? And what I've seen is the allocation of resources in an area that traditionally, especially when it came to population and public health, with this spotlight on it, I've seen a shift in resources. And specifically within academics, we see funding calls for types of research and partnerships and collaborations that look very different than they did many years ago. Um, and so there is an elevation of it as a priority. 
And also there is an action behind that elevation with dollars. And we need, we need the resources to be able to move this needle forward. So I've been seeing um, a lot of resources being allocated more so than they had in the past uh, to doing this work. And it, it is taking, um, I guess, a higher priority in the hierarchy of, of work, especially when it comes to health. And disease orientations are very important, absolutely. But again, also balancing out some of those prevention initiatives and more of the population health lens, that's very, very exciting. Um, another space is really the recognition of the interconnectedness of us just as human beings and how what affects one really affects all of us. And I think that struck a chord in a way that's operationalized across different spaces and initiatives and just how we show up for each other and how we care for each other. And that has given me um, a lot of hope and a lot of inspiration um, to continuing uh, to, to do this work. And so the other area that I feel has also bubbled up in an encouraging way when I talk about being bold and courageous is this urgency to be bold and creative and to be innovative. Um, I think we've been taking our time. Health disparities is not new. We've been speaking about this, many of us, for many, many years and decades. It's known, but there's a, there's a new wind of urgency and a momentum that is very encouraging um, to me to see that. And it, and it does give me hope that, you know, this window has been opened quite widely. And what can we do with this opportunity and how innovative we can be with it? And so those are just a, a, a few of the things that have really brought me, brought me joy. And I'll say, if, if this was the price is right, I'm always last to the buzzer. So, but, you know, excited, still excited. Um, for, for me, the things that are that are really, um, that give me joy, um, you know, they're, they're related to, to what I do and what I'm passionate about. And so first and foremost, I'll say, you know, my, my colleagues in the VCU health system are doing their doing their part to to recognize and, and unearth the history of structural racism uh, that that our hospital system has has uh, been a part of. And so that's helping us build trust and 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 be transparent with with our community. So that's that's really important and critical for our patients. Uh, I would say secondly, we have tons of, of community-led initiatives, and it's and it's really uh, critical, as as Camille noted earlier, uh, to take direction from folks uh, versus direct them. So that that gives me joy, uh, and I learn from folks and meet so many different people. And lastly, uh, this is the first time in the history of, of NCI that DEI is being considered uh, or, or as a factor for cancer centers. To, to move up in their designation. And so that's really important, right? If, if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be here. Um, but, but secondly, it ensures that cancer centers are doing their due diligence to make sure that cultural factors, the social determinants of health, uh, community-led initiatives, uh, and, and so many other aspects of, of diversity, equity, and inclusion are, are being included and leveraged along with the best science possible to make sure that we end cancer. Uh, well, thank you to all of you for those uh, wonderful observations and reflections. Um, I have to tell you, I learned so much in our session today, and I am hopeful for the future because 
of the four of you and the colleagues you have and the work that you're doing and the differences that you're making every single day. So um, thank you for spending time with us today. And uh, more importantly, thank you for the incredible work you do. It's just been a pleasure to talk with you.